We're going to be continuing our worship here this morning. Take out your Bible. We're going to be looking at a strangely titled message here this morning. It really is all about me. Um, In fact, if you've been around me much, you've probably heard me say it's not all about me. Uh, So this is a little change of direction for us here this morning. Uh, Discouragement, depression, you know, one really does not need to look too far to find darkness in this life. Me, I'm a hopeless optimist. Uh, You know, I I, I tend to wear my emotions on my sleeves. Uh, Seriously, any book I read or movie I watch, I want the guy to get the girl in the end. I do. I'm a romantic at heart, okay? And I want problems to get fixed. I want conflict to get worked out. In fact, I, I want everything to be, well, awesome, All right, I seriously thought only five of us had seen the Lego movie, so I'm a little more impressed with your cultural awareness. All right, okay. Well, I I want to get to the end of the TV show and have all of the characters displaying displaying corny, cheesy smiles. And I'm sure if you pressed me hard enough, you could probably even get me to say that I like to sing Kumbaya around the campfire and that I want world peace. You know, but I'm not much different in real-life situations. I want people to become wise without having to bear the scars of making stupid, sinful decisions. Ultimately, I want the people I love to not experience pain or suffering. Yeah, you could say I have issues, all right? Trust me, I've wrestled with God time after time after time concerning this. My wife, Lori, she's still faithful to ask me, do you really think you're going to win? Really? And my gracious wife might carry just a smidge of sarcasm when she finishes our exchange by saying, yeah, let me know how that works out for you. And you know what? Lori's right. She's right. I continue to lose. I continue to wrestle, and I continue to lose. I never win when I wrestle against God. Go figure. You know, sin makes us stupid. Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage? Why do the kings plot a vain thing, right? Against the Lord and against his anointed one. Well, there are times where I still wrestle as well. I'm still a sinner in desperate need of grace. And God has been working on my heart quite a bit regarding this concept of no pain, no suffering in the lives of people I love. But guess what? We still live in a sin-cursed world. And the psalmist knew a thing or two about discouragement, depression, pain, and suffering. So Psalm 42 is where we're going to be spending the majority of our time this morning. I'm sure many of you are already there. The theme of the book of Psalms is life is hard, God is good. And there are times where I need to specifically remind myself about God's goodness. Okay, looking at Psalm 42 we see in the first 10 verses the communication of the first causes of discouragement or depression. Now, just this morning, we sang the opening words of Psalm 42, right? As the deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. That's vivid imagery. Although I strongly would not recommend trying any of these yourselves, right? Don't try any of this at home. Let me share with you some medical facts, and this is called the rule of threes. Okay, did you know that you can live roughly 
three minutes without air. I would not recommend trying that. You know, did you know that you can live roughly three weeks without food? Even more, some experts believe the human body can survive without food for up to two months. But that doesn't really fit that nice little three thing. So, um, however, you know, water is the big issue here. This is the big issue for us, water. Roughly three days without water will have disastrous results on your body. As far as I understand, that will be the time where your body's internal organs start to shut down one by one. For those of you who have been to Israel, you know it can be very, very hot. When you are out in the middle of that heat, finding a spring of water is like finding a treasure. Many of us might read verse 1 here, and we might think, Walt Disney, Bambi, right? We might think of the serene picture involving Bambi, or this picture taken up highlight, you know? But for the animal in Psalm 42, there is no serenity. We need to adjust our thinking here. We need to consider an animal that has been running hard. It is lathered in sweat. It is on the verge of exhaustion. It is frantic. And then, and then it spots the water. Now, the animal doesn't look at the water and think, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll take a drink someday. No, no, no. If, if that's the attitude of the water, or if that's the attitude of the animal, you know what? The animal is grossly uninformed regarding the seriousness of its situation. No, this animal knows it is in despair. It knows the urgency of its circumstances. It knows that it is in desperate need of water and how life-giving the water will be. So only by hungrily, greedily consuming the water will the animal be able to survive. That is the picture we should consider here at the beginning of Psalm 42. Okay, verses 1 and 2 present missing corporate worship as a cause of discouragement or depression. All right, look at verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And here the psalmist presented a longing for a deeper personal awareness of God. Have you ever had a time? Have you ever had a time where it seemed like you were in the wilderness all alone? Whether now or at some point in the past, I'm sure many of us can identify with that perspective or, or with that concept of being a valley or being in a wilderness in our relationship with God. There are times where the valley seems incredibly dark or the wilderness seems incredibly vast. Now, if this is your situation, could I encourage you by saying you are not alone? Right? Speaking as one who has encountered those times as well, please do not forget that God is still God. He is still on his throne. He is not surprised by us being in the wilderness. However, please do not be content to build a house and set up permanent residence in the valley or the wilderness in relationship to God. Okay, to see a little commentary regarding pursuing God, turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We'll start with verse 6. Right in the middle it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Sometimes the valley or wilderness can be brought about by thoughts of loneliness or alienation. Now, if this is your situation, again, you are not alone. Very likely, the psalmist was suffering loneliness and alienation. There's a strong likelihood he had been taken captive by either Assyria or Babylon, and that he was a long way from home, and he would have been unable to join in a corporate worship setting with others of the same faith. All of that makes sense because a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ wants to be around others who are following Christ. Verse 3. Verse 3 shows verbal ridicule as another cause of discouragement or depression. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me continually, where is your God? Well, it seems that the psalmist was taunted by people around him, right? These people could be the enemies we see later on in the psalm. That's a possibility. The wording can present that the psalmist had no real desire for food. His tears had been his food. Isn't it interesting that when we are in the midst of inner turmoil, food loses its appeal? It seems the psalmist experienced that reality firsthand in his life. Verse 4, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So verse 4 demonstrates a slight change as the psalmist recalled pleasant memories centered around spending time with God's people heading toward the corporate gathering. There is a pleasantness here. Verse 5 stands alone by itself. Stands alone as a faithful cure for discouragement or depression. Look at verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Now now notice there's an introspective question right here. Why are you cast down? Right? Why are you in turmoil? Why are you disturbed? Now in this verse, the psalmist spoke to himself to try to figure out what is taking place. Notice how the psalmist stirred his mind to override his emotions. He stirred his mind to override his emotions. There's a little sense here where the psalmist is trying to figure out how he got to where he is. Right? Why are you cast down? Why are you disturbed? Why are you in turmoil, oh my soul? And one person offered these thoughts concerning the first two steps where sin can take us. Quote, men enter and initiate themselves in a vicious practice by small sins. Right? That'd be our perspective of small sins. Having once begun in the ways of sin, the man ventures upon something great and more daring. His courage grows with his experience, and he gives himself more liberty to walk in the ways of his own heart and the sight of his own eyes. The reality is the psalmist 
understood this key principle. Thought leads to action. Belief precedes doing. Willful confusion regarding God and his character gives birth to compromise. Our choices have consequences. Our beliefs will live their way out in our lives. We do not wake up one day and start acting like we answer to no one. We, we do not awaken one day and out of the blue throw away 10, 20, or 30 plus years of marriage by committing adultery. We do not get out of bed one day and unexpectedly embrace the delusion that we are okay without God. We construct each of those beliefs over time just like a house is built over time. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God confronts humanity's tendency toward self. Jeremiah chapter 2. Let's go ahead and turn there. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 contain these words from God. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12. Be appalled. O heavens, at this, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Why? That would be a good question. Well, Lord answer it. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have dug cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. All right, so notice that God does not wink at what is taking place here in Jeremiah chapter 2. He calls what the Israelites were doing evil. Okay, now that, that, that's another thing. Notice it's not, not like God's ambivalent about it. No, he calls it evil. All right. Now in these verses, God says that two things are evil. The first one, forsaking God, who is the source of living water. Okay, that's the first evil. But notice that it doesn't stop there. The second evil is trying to pursue water on our own. Okay, notice that there's a common trait found in both of these actions. It's self-reliance. That's the commonality. Remember, we do not get to the peak of Mount Everest in a day. From arriving at base camp to climbing to the top of Mount Everest takes six to eight weeks. Training for the climb typically adds another two to three years. Climbing such a peak is a lengthy process. So it is in our lives. One recent songwriter calls this process a slow fade. Quote, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade, choices are made, A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. So back in Psalm 42, if you're paying attention, you noticed I stopped reading after the first portion of verse 5. So let's go back and look at the full verse here. Full verse, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Now here's the response. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now notice how the latter part of the verse contains an inevitable answer. The psalmist answered the introspective question 
with two inevitable answers. One, hope in God. Hope in God. And then two, have a praising heart. So when dealing with a downcast soul, the psalmist encouraged himself and all of us to have a patient hope in God and a praising heart. All right, you really can't get, to get much more practical than this. this. This is straight application. Each one of us needs to remember well, place your hope in God and have a praising heart. Right? The psalmist recognized that God alone can offer hope. None of us are strong enough. One friend recently offered this thought concerning being strong enough. You know, I might be able to muscle things on my own for a while, but eventually the cracks will show. I'd like to challenge even that thought process. You know, each of us needs to recognize that any strength we have is a gift from God. Right? We think we are strong enough. We think we are self-sufficient. We think we are wise enough. However, do you realize that is just our perception? That it is the common grace of God that is overwhelming our lives? Even for us to be here this morning, we might think, yeah, I got out of bed. All right. Who's holding your body together? Who is forcing your lungs to continue breathing? Who continues to do this on your heart so that it will keep pumping blood? through your veins and your vessels. It's like, can, can we not see this? I mean, we, sin is so deceptive, pride is so deceptive that we think we are okay, but even in thinking we are okay, we're not okay. The reality of the situation is we don't have strength. We don't have anything except for the grace of God who wills us to continue living. God is the only one who is getting us through each day, through each moment. You know, am I strong enough is the wrong question. Instead, I should ask why I so desperately want to think I am strong enough. And if we are honest with ourselves, the reason we want to be strong enough on our own is that we can say we do not need God. That's the base reality. Because that means we would no longer have to answer to anyone I get to call the shots. It seems the psalmist is pleading with himself to pursue a heart of humility. In Isaiah 66, God says that he looks toward those who are humble and contrite in spirit, right? Those who are broken, to those who tremble at his word. 1 Peter 5 says this, God resists the proud, but what? But gives grace to the humble. So in Psalm 42, the psalmist understood the dangers of perceived self-reliance and independence. Now verses 6 through 10, okay, here the psalmist offers further causes of discouragement or depression. Verse 6, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mitzar. Now verse 5, the psalmist was speaking truth to himself, but in verse 6, the psalmist laid open his heart to the one who knows him the best, the creator God of the universe. The psalmist acknowledged that he is not in a good place, but he is seeking to change. 
please take note because this is a key issue for all of us. We, we, we can laugh at the phrase here, getting past denial is the first stage to recovery, right? I mean, we could laugh at that, but there is a sense in which there's a biblical model there. Recognizing and identifying sin is the start, but we cannot end at the identification process. So yes, we identify the sin, but we must do something about the sin. So so as a personal example here, let let me give you a little picture into my life. Okay, I'm about as non-mechanical, non-mechanical as they come. All right, and uh, um, yeah, much to Lori's chagrin, I am not about as non-mechanical as they come. Um, You know, I can hear strange sounds coming from underneath my car. Okay. And I can open up the hood and I can make this profound statement. Yep. It's got an engine. (laughs) All right. That's about the extent of my, my knowledge and, and my ability. I somehow escaped the farm without any true practical knowledge. Yeah, I know. It's like, what? What in the world? All right. You know, but, but think about this. If, if nothing is done about the noise, what's going to happen? Well, eventually, the vehicle is going to stop working. Worst case scenario. And in that setting, I'm in desperate need of other people to come around me, right? To, um, it'd be kind of funny way to state this, to help me. It's like, well, no, 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 they're the one doing it. (laughs) I'm not really helping them fix the vehicle, you know? And so here's here's the application here. This is the same way in the body of Christ, Galatians 6 instructs us to come alongside a follower of Christ who is caught in sin. We are called to gently restore. That is our calling. But get this, we have to care. We have to share a concern for the testimony of Christ. We have to share a care for those around us and even for ourselves in terms of seeking to restore the brother or sister. We have to care. Right? One author has written, quote, There is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there is nothing for which it will die. Sloth or apathy can wholeheartedly consume us. You know, can, can we be any more apathetic than that? Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We can consider what the author of Hebrews wrote concerning this thought of willful apathy regarding who God is, regarding God's right to rule our lives, and our perspective regarding sin. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 26, you know, this is a part, quite honestly, of the Bible we just don't like reading. I I can tell you, I don't like reading it, and so, but we're going to read it, all right? Hebrews 10, verse 26, for if we, what, go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment 
and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So it is not enough to acknowledge sin and then to continue in the sin. It's not enough to acknowledge it. Right? Acknowledgement of sin requires no change. Nothing has to change. I can just acknowledge it and just like, oh, yep, yep, there, there's a sound in the engine. All right. There's, there's nothing that has to change, right? True repentance, however, requires change. True repentance always involves change. Let's turn back to Psalm 42. Keep going in Psalm 42. Verse 7 is where we, we left off. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Verse 7 seems to present overwhelming trials. Now, this here is a totally different perspective from the opening of the psalm. Right In contrast to the nice, gentle, flowing stream of water right? that's described in verse 1, verse 7 presents a tempest of waters overwhelming the psalmist's soul. Right? Trouble seems to come over the psalmist like intense water from waterfalls. Right? I mean, just imagine yourself being at the base of Niagara Falls and just getting pummeled by this water. Or, or for those of you, you know, being in Africa, Victoria Falls. Right? Trouble seems to come over him like intense water from waterfalls. You almost get the sense of this. Mounting trials seem to overwhelm him like wave after wave after wave out in the ocean. Sadly, for many of us, it takes focused hardship to bring us to a place of surrender with the Lord. Right? When things are going well, we can buy into the lie that we do not need God. We can think, I'm okay. Everything's, everything's going okay, all right. I know in my life, there are definite times where I have thought I had things under control. You know, there, there was a time where uh, living in rebellion against the Lord, um, I still thought I was in control of that situation, but God graciously showed me that no, I was not in control. Um, you know, another thing can just happen with family. Uh, my, my wife, Lori, and I were married at a young age. Um, here's a shameless plug for our wedding anniversary, by the way, 22 years this coming Friday. Praise the Lord. Um, all right, and you know, along the way, a couple years into the marriage, God blessed us with one child, you know, a son, Micah, and then 
a daughter, Hannah. You know, one boy, one girl. Pretty much had the world by the tail. After giving birth to Hannah, though, some issues started showing up regarding Lori's back. And years filled with tremendous pain went by. I still remember the morning we met with the first back specialist. And it was that back specialist who said that Lori should have had surgery, you know, years ago. That, that was his phraseology. The surgery should have been done years ago, and that surgery at this point would likely produce paralysis, loss of bladder function, loss of bowel function, loss of sexual function. And I remember him standing up and offering his hand and saying, thank you for coming in. For a young 20-something, that seemed to be a pretty big deal. My perception of having the world by the tail, my perception of being in control, my perception of, oh yeah, I've got my life all mapped out, (laughs) pretty much came to a grinding halt that morning. Right, that short interaction with that one doctor pretty much shattered my thought of doing just fine on my own. It's like, uh, for those of you who've been over to the Lewis and Clark uh, caverns, and you get to that basest, that lowest portion in there, and then they turn out the lights, and you can't see a thing. That's what it seemed like. Now, the guy is supposed to be the stable one, right? <laughs> uh, we all know how good I am with keeping you know, my, my emotions inside. I, I was a wreck. I was an absolute wreck. It seemed like I could barely keep my, above, above the, my head above the water that was seeking to drown me. But as God continued to guide us through that process, he, as he continued to carry us through that process, I sent an email to a dear, fr- a dear friend, a brother, And it reads like this. Yeah, Lori's back. Today serves as a reminder that this will probably be a condition for life. The pain is as intense as it has ever been. The feeling of bone grinding upon bone has returned. Brother, please pray. Pray for us that we would not become bitter, cynical, or angry. Yes, this is our Lord's plan for us. Why? I don't know. To refine us, to make us more like Jesus, I mean, that, that's, that's the answer we're supposed to give. Easy? No. Painful? Yes. Good? Yes. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's words through one of the children in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. One of the children asks Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan the Lion, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Well, that you will, dearie. And no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either braver than most or just plain silly. Well, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. We want safe, don't we? 
Well, I guess I cannot speak for you. I can only speak for myself. My feeble mind and my weak body want a safe God, a God who will not change me, who will not refine me, who will not discipline me, who will not boggle my mind. Yet such a God would not be capable of creating me, ruling me, loving me, sending his son to die for me. You know, and as much as this weighs in my life, I know there are people here in our fellowship who God has carried through much darker days than anything me or my family has experienced. But please get this, the point is not us. Right, the point is not me, the point isn't you. The point is God's faithfulness, God's steadfast love. Look at verse eight here in Psalm 42. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love and by night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So here, even in the midst of trials, the psalmist reaffirmed his confidence in Yahweh, his confidence in the Lord. One author has stated regarding verse eight, the result is not a deadening of his sense of sorrow, as seen in verse seven, but rather a setting of it in right relationship to God. Look at verses nine and 10. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, where is your God? Now, similar to many of us, right? And we should be able to identify. We should identify with the psalmist here. The psalmist's emotions are doing what? They are going back and forth and back and forth. Say, all right. Even as a redeemed child of the king, you know what? I still live in a sin-filled body. I long for the day where there will never be any doubt. I long for the day where sin will be no more. I long for that day. But right now, being bluntly honest, there are some days of where it's like maybe I don't think about God exactly as I should. You know, one day, some of us might be inclined to say, yeah, God is good. He loves me. All is well. But then the next day, we might grumble, you know, how can God let this situation take place? You know, there are some days where we would say, God, you alone can satisfy, right? We just sang those words earlier, and either we were a bunch of liars or we were praying, asking God to make that be a reality, right? I love you more than gold and silver, or I want you more than gold and silver. I love you more than anything. It's like, okay. You know, but there are other days where we state, God, I'm not sure that you're enough. You know, it seems to me you're keeping me from these other things I think will bring me happiness. I'm not sure that you're big enough. Now make no mistake here, when we pursue things other than God, we will never be satisfied. It's never going to happen. I hate to burst your bubble. That's the reality of life. It's not going to happen. 
One author has stated this regarding our continual desire for more. The sin nature compels us to love ourselves. In our reckless pursuit of self-gratification, we impose upon ourselves gnawing emptiness rather than the joy and contentment that comes in loving God and others. So there's a bizarre reality to this. The more we seek to love ourselves, the emptier we are going to feel. Right? Uh, it's kind of ironic. The more we try to fill our love cup, the emptier the love cup actually is. I just think that's a really funny picture. But um, anyway, you know, it's, th- that, it's just so bizarre. The more we focus on self, the emptier we are going to be. The more we seek our own satisfaction, the less satisfaction we will find. This is known as the law of diminishing returns, right? In seeking self, we are like the drug addict who continually needs a little bit more of the drug each time to achieve a similar high, and then eventually there is no satisfaction at all. The wonder of the book of Psalms is that it is a clear depiction of life. Yes, life is hard, but God is good. I need that reminder. Whether or not I recognize his goodness and his sovereignty, that doesn't change the reality that he alone is God, that he is still on his throne, that he is still in control, and that he is still working. Right? God's still there. He is still at work. If we do not see him at work, could it be it is because we do not want to see him? Could it be that we want to reason him away, explain him away so that we get to call the shots? Verse 11 presents the final cure for discouragement or depression. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now again, notice the introspective question and the inevitable answer, right? Why are you downcast? Why are you disturbed? And then the response, right? Have patient hope in God. Also have a praising heart toward God. In Psalm 63, the psalmist states, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. So do we realize even this, that God is the one who grants us the grace to respond? Right? We see in his word that we only can love him because he first loved us. Well, the only reason we're able to respond to him, the only reason we even have faith is because he is the one who initiated that in us. Right? God is the one who grants us the grace to respond. Now, this is the tricky dynamic of this, but I am the one who needs to be responsible to use the mind that God has given me. I need to be willing to speak the truth to myself. 
I need to give direction to my emotions. Right, some of us may identify with the psalmist's longing after God. Praise God for that. Others of us may look at the psalmist and think, I don't have that desire at all. Right? I have no, none, not a smidge of a desire. You know, earlier we, we looked at the thought process of identifying the sin and then dealing with the sin. Right? So we need to maintain that biblical perspective. If you don't have that desire, be honest with God. He already knows. It's not like you're going to surprise him. I know there are times in my life of where I just wouldn't pray because somehow I'm thinking that God doesn't know about it if I don't think about it. I, I know. It's dorky. It's dumb. But isn't that a reality? It's like, oh yeah, I'm never going to pray about God sending me to the mission field because he actually might do it. Oh yeah, somehow God needs my permission to make that happen? Yeah, I think of Jonah. It's like, what in the world? God doesn't need my permission. But the bizarre thing is that when we are honest with God, he does do a miraculous work in us. As we confess our sin and as we repent, he changes us. So we speak honestly with God about what is taking place in our hearts and our minds, but we don't stop there. We then ask God to please soften my heart, soften my self-will, soften myself. Right? Now, Lord, give me a deep and abiding love for you. You are the one who created me. You are the one who continues to hold my body together. We opened the gathering here this morning with a great prayer of my life being an offering and that's the reality here, even as we're coming to the end of Psalm 42. Each of us is responsible to make a choice. You see, it really is all about me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, in one in one manner or another, each and every one of us here in this room can identify with the psalmist on some level. Here in Psalm 42, we see someone who has struggled with uh, trusting you. We see someone who maybe desires for your hand to be more active or to, to move quicker than you had decided you were going to work. Um, Father, we also see one who offers a desire to pursue you, even as we see that great picture of that deer 
that tired, exhausted deer just hungrily lapping and, and consuming and just gobbling in the water. Right? The stream might be serene, but the animal is just frantic. So, Father, thank you for bringing us those things in life that drive us back to you. Because left to ourselves, Lord, left to myself, I'm prone to wander. I, I just am, Lord. I am prone to think that I am okay. I am prone to think that all is well. Father, please forgive me. Forgive me for thinking that I somehow have it all together because I'm breathing your air. (laughs) Um, I'm walking. I'm using feet that you created. I'm touching. I'm using hands that you own. And in my sinfulness, I think it's mine. And yet in the reality is this body is yours. So Lord, may our lives be living sacrifices, live before you for your glory. And Lord, as we, as we see these scenarios of discouragement around us, just like the psalmist, Lord, we can be discouraged. Would you please strengthen us to place our hope and our trust in you, to fix our eyes on you, to get our eyes off ourselves. Thank you for faithfully working in us, for your glory, Lord, and ultimately, yes, for our good as well. Help us to grow in our love for you, Lord. Remove the blinders that we've placed over our eyes. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.